Every time, every time we we enter. Every time we enter. <laughs> well, who, so you switched Tupac for Biggie behind you? Yeah, I, we switched them up uh, seasonally. I, so Tupac is now upstairs, and the notorious Big is downstairs. His birthday is coming up in a couple weeks, and so I figured it's time to switch. I also have an MF Doom painting, so that'll make its way down here at some point. A what painting? MF Doom, super underground rapper. You'll see. Oh, Doom. Okay, I yeah, think I thought you said Dune. Like no, the, like the eighties movie. Yeah, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, doing I, I, I want you to have a Dune painting. Yeah, no, I don't have a Dune painting. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll bring him down here at some point in the spring. It's kind of a dark painting, but it's good. Oh, that's amazing. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, well, I'm on Yahoo.com here. <laughs> Checking yeah. out the old news. <laughs> what do they say? I'm always I'm always impressed by somebody when they're like, "Here's my personal email," and it's either Yahoo or Hotmail. What was your first? My first Hotmail. Hotmail. I can't. Oh no, AOL. Oh, AOL. 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 AOL was my first. You got blah blah blah. So I had that garbage, and uh, okay, not garbage, but I had that great innovation of the '90s, yep. and uh, and uh, I think my second was Yahoo, man. I think it was Yahoo, and then Hotmail. And then, uh, and like everybody else who sold out Gmail, yeah, sold out to Google. I got my Gmail account when Gmail was still invitation only. That's how old school I am. Like that's old school. I remember. Do you remember the first time you went to Google.com? Because I do. I, I remember it. Do you remember the first time? I don't. I don't think I remember. I remember the. I remember going to it and going. There's nothing on the page, because you're used to Yahoo. It's a big blank page. Yeah. Alta Vista, Lycos, Netscape, you know, everything with ads and tons of buttons. Here's my story. It's fast. Uh, I was in college. My friend Will, uh, William Dubell, who is an engineer at Intel and a brilliant deep thinker, and I went to college together and we would hang out. I mean, it's fucking college. So we would hang out like every night at his house and just goof around until like 3 a.m., go in his pool, hang out, you know, invite some uh, friends over, you know, do the things, right? And so one night he's very technical and he had this like huge, uh, he had this micron computer tower <laughs> with like scuzzy hard drives that he used to show off to us. And, um, and he had this like 27 inch Sony Trinitron monitor that honestly, Andy, I don't think I could fit through my front door. Like we're talking about like a TV set, like electron tube, whatever, like massive monitor, but we thought it was the coolest thing ever. It was white. I'll never forget. And he's like, Pedro, let me show you something. And he goes on google.com and exact, it's this massive screen and it was just a blank page and it just said Google at the top. I'm like, what is this? And back then it was like, you'll remember, it was like Alta Vista, Excite Search, Everything. AOL, NetFind, like all of these old school, there was like a Netscape one. Ask Jeeves. Got to ask Jeeves, man. And so I'm like, what is this? And so he does a search engine. It's this like clean, all text, like layout. And then he's like, uh, um, I also have an email address with this company. It's Gmail. And he shows me just the, the UI. And it was so simple. And the colors just kind of googly. And I was like, oh, I need that. And we looked at the bottom left. And it said, invite your friend. And he had like, I don't know, two or three invites. And I was like, you sucker, you better send me an invite right now. <laughs> and so, bam, that's how I got my Gmail so account at 2 a.m. at Will's house with a couple of beers. You, and can some tell me, uh, you can tell me after we end the recording, but I want to know what the surf first search was for. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you offline. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about Scott. <laughs> well, yeah. Speaking of weird Google searches, our friend Scott. <laughs> Scott Scott joined us for a fun conversation. He's the chair of cybersecurity and privacy at Manat, which is a firm uh, that he joined like two years ago. And uh, he's one of my go-to people, friends, you know, a lot like we've had a bunch of our, our people on before. 
And more importantly than anything, he's my go-to for, you know, kind of moral compassy type issues. And, you know, when I just need, uh, need an opinion, he's the guy I can go to him all the time. Yeah. I'll try to fluster Scott and it's not going to work. he's he's pretty good man he's pretty steady you know he doesn't get too high too low um and i think that's good in outside counsel man especially in your space where you're like you know uh in like the startup there's like a volatility in a startup right like and you this is like your third one i guess now right um and so um i can see how a steady hand serves you well you need it it's an absolute necessity and when i come in and we have, it, it's so important to have your people. Yeah. Because you can't ever do it alone. And, yeah, yeah. And, and in startups, you're often alone for a period of time, you know, until you to get, get to the point where right, right now at Alice, I'm really lucky to have Beth and Jamie working on, on our team. And, um, you know, we're, we're in great shape now, but it's, it can be a grind without people like Scott backstopping you and, uh, and helping every every time something really hard happens it happens i think that's right and and he's had a good firm we I, you know yeah. i used we i've used this term before for more like public policy california stuff but like super great firm like fair pricing uh you know like always very, available uh, responsive good firm very progressive firm yes in yes a lot, in a lot of ways and uh consulting practice law firm like they just they there's a lot of um there's a lot of creative thinking in that firm. And so that's an interesting thing. And Which is a shocker. Rare. Because, you know, rare. And I think a big reason Scott joined the uh, joined Manat. So here it Let's is. Go. Let's do it. Yeah. Here we are. We're here. We're here. Scott has just consented to video recording, biometric uh, collection, yeah. uh, any other data collection. And uh, we're going to list his personal home address a little bit later. He's agreed to let us use his personal data in perpetuity for any purpose. His dog's that name. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and my social security number. Yes. Yeah, got the social jotted down, already applying to a credit card. We're moving. We're moving. Yep. Uh, excellent. Well, uh, we're really pumped to welcome our friend Scott Lashway here. Uh, you, could, you were leader of the privacy and cybersecurity practice at Manat. Um, a law firm that, uh, that, so how long have you been there? Two years? About two years. Yeah. Yeah. And prior to that, Scott was like us. He was an in-house guy at Mass Mutual. Um, and so I think, I think it's a good, a, a, a good place to start is you went, um, you were in a couple larger law firms and then you went in-house um, we're always like, like intrigued by people that make that choice, but then I'm extra intrigued by someone that makes the choice to go back. So, so will you start there? Tell us what you, what the thought process was kind of at that point. What the point of, of going out to private practice? Well, no, going to you know, I, I start, I... start with going to mass mutual. Oh, um, you know, I was at a law firm. I loved it. Uh, love the people I work with, but it seemed to me like, you know, being closer to the decision making at companies was was appealing and kind of spreading my wings a little bit was appealing. The job was appealing. Uh, the people I was going to be working with was appealing. So it was kind of one of those where it was a little bit of a no brainer um, and it proved to be right. I mean, I, you know, I had an opportunity to be a lot closer to the decision making. And, you know, I think a lot of outside counsel don't appreciate the amount of lawyering that goes inside, goes on inside companies. And, you know, I saw it for five and a half years, six years. And so it's very instructive to how I practice today. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? The outside counsel don't appreciate the inside counsel's lawyering necessarily? Well, I mean, <laughs> so there are decisions every day that are made inside your companies, right? That, that generate legal risk or legal opportunities. And, you know, not every time that occurs, folks like yourself pick up the phone and call folks like myself outside the company. I mean, you know, you're one phone call away from dealing with this, that, the other thing. It was interesting when I first got to the company, we were in an offsite and the general counsel was, and, and he cared about this and now I care about it, this idea of judgment and how important it is to what we do every day. 
And he picked on me and I ended up going back and forth with him for a while in front of the, the law department about how it is important to have judgment, not just on the most important matters, you know, the ones that like get the headlines, but on the everyday mundane decisions that the company makes where legal advice is important. And I think that's, that's where risk uh, materializes, develops, manifests, whatever you want to describe it. And you know, I think that's the in-house counsel's role. In addition to the big material things, making sure those those are handled properly, um, it's the everyday decisions that that you know where where the in-house lawyer gets called on, you know, quick hallway conversation when those used to happen. And and I think you know I enjoyed that, as I'm sure you guys do. Yeah, it's a big it's a big part of the job. And uh... how do you go back to a law firm? I don't, I, I physically couldn't do it. <laughs> no, <laughs> physically. Like, um, they'd have to drag so, me in. <laughs> Who knows? You know, it's funny. A That's lot of people right now. <laughs> yeah. A lot of folks have asked me that and I said, I can never go back to the billable hour. And I don't think that's the problem and for me. I mean, it is, that is what it is. It's how, you know, time gets or our, our resources get valued outside a company. Um, for me, you know, I I really enjoyed the engine of being outside a company. I, I was working, you know, twelve hour plus days anyway. Um, I I enjoy private practice. It's not. I, I didn't go in house to leave private practice. Uh, it was it was just something that I thought would be, improve me and improve my experience. So my decision making to go into private practice, I'm sorry, into in house was probably different than a lot of lawyers. So I was excited to come out and I, I love being out. Uh, I love the folks I work with. Um, and I think that's important. That's the, I mean, that's the other appeal is, you know, I, I work with great people, which can be had in private practice. Yeah. That was what, so that was one thing that I wanted to point out. We, we, we jokingly, uh, you know, called this episode Voltron, right. Where uh, 80s cartoon where a bunch of lion robots form a massive super robot, but you know, as, as one of your clients, um, and it, you know, it, it's it's really beneficial to get the value of the team, and you've built a team there. And I think, you know, from our conversations, you've you've said that that's that's critical for you. Like that that's critical in development yeah. practices. Like, you know, you won't see every member of the team on your bill, but they're weighing in, and that's a that's that's an in-house type hallway conversation type situation that you've tried to bring to the firm and like is that right am i thinking about that the right way that's right yeah i mean and it's and it's all folks you know it's it's not just necessarily calling the partner you know and saying hey have you ever dealt with this issue it's you know asking everyone on the team or anyone on the team to say hey i, I need you to have a second set of eyes on this and, and we and, and we don't do it because you know, we want someone else billing. We do it because we want to get the best work product, but it's also fun. I mean, it's a, it's a lot more enjoyable to do your work when someone else is kind of alongside. And so, you know, we have the benefit in, at, at the firm of truly enjoying one another's company and respecting one another's talents. And, and our team is, I mean, I don't think there are two people on our team, on our privacy and data security team that overlap 100%. We all have very different sets of experience that we bring to the table, which is purposeful. So it's fun that way. Is $1,200 an hour, just curious, like at the high end, is $1,200 an hour, does that make sense? Like is that for anybody's time, for brain surgeon's time? Uh, for me, I would say you should pay more. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to evaluate because I think there's a lot that goes into that. One, you know, is the person actually charging you for every second they spend working on your work? If they are, then I would say 1200 is a lot, right? If you're getting nickel and dime for every time you're, you know, calling or reaching out, then I think that's a lot, um, uh, a lot of money. And I think you should, you know, make sure that you're getting the value out of that that rate. Um, personally, I, I, you know, we we like to tell our clients. So this is a little saying we have, and and as people uh, listen or watch to this, to the extent they find it interesting, maybe they'll pick it up. But you know, we like to be the general practitioners to our clients, not just the surgeons. So 
we want to understand our clients, which takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. And sometimes, you know, clients aren't going to pay $1,200 for us to learn about their, their business operations or technology. And they probably shouldn't, but we like to do that. And so we often find ourselves at the beginning of engagements, investing a lot of energy um, on our dime. When you and I talked, Scott, when you were thinking about moving from one firm to another, one of the things that you mentioned to me is that they'll let they'll let me set my rate at X, right? And it wasn't twelve hundred dollars an hour, right? They'll they'll let me set that's my right. rate at X, which is lower than you know some some rate that somebody might want them to charge. And I think that correct me if I'm wrong, right? That ties to what you're saying. Like it has to be reasonable and you're you're working with people on a project basis a lot of times uh a litigation or, or a matter where you're giving right. quotes you're not living and dying by that quote but you're saying like this is gonna, this is going to be roughly this and that's the heads up that that in-house team needs yeah and and but but also we have a team so you don't just see me working by myself right so it's not like well i called scott and he charges x and he's gonna do everything from the photocopying all the way to writing you know xyz you're gonna see some balance in how the team functions and um, and some control of costs at the end of the day i mean you know the other model if you get away from the hourly bill is you know cost for service or cost for product and and i i frankly i know a lot of clients say they would prefer that but i'm not sure clients are actually ready to to truly tolerate what it what some of the costs would look like my own two cents yeah do you think the best privacy lawyers are in-house or at firms um they're definitely not in they're definitely not in civil society or in the regulatory space. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The very finest you know, are the regulators. Um, um, the top end, top shelf, we can't compete with that level of intellectual veracity. But where are the other good ones? <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think the, the best ones are probably in-house. I think you see more of it in-house. I think I well, I think you see deeper into the weeds in house than a lot of privacy lawyers. Um, you know, if I if I have to read one more, you know, white paper from somebody telling me what the law says, which is directly contradictory to what the law actually says, <laughs> you know, that that that's a problem in this space. I mean, and and everyone's talking about. It. I mean. There's this funny thing in privacy and, and in security, which is now, and, and, and it's really being driven by the lawyers, but there's this whole idea of like, when did you first start? Because if I started before you, I'm more knowledgeable than you. And then there's a lot of criticism how all these lawyers are flocking to the industry because, you know, it's like the hot thing in the, in the papers or it's the hot topic right now in law schools. And we're seeing that in our recruiting. Um, and, and what's funny is I, I have, you know, I, you know, you'll be, you'll be talking to somebody, a competitor or somebody at another law firm, and they'll try to convince me they've been doing this longer than me. And, and it's always a remarkable conversation to me. Um, I'm not sure the length of practice is always, always determinative of, of expertise, but I think, I think pure regulatory counseling on privacy, Pedro, I think you're probably going to get better talent in-house. I do. I, I, I think, think you're going to have a better is, experience. But you alluded to something important. And obviously, I was being facetious before. I think there are great lawyers everywhere. Um, uh, but like, yeah. I think one of the benefits of being in-house, and I've been in-house now a long time, is that uh, you get exposed to the operational part in a way that no outside counsel yeah. can. Like, I mean, I'm in every yep. operational call. I'm in every compliance meeting. Like, I get to see the machinations not just a theoretical like GDPR says you must do this and CCPA says right. create a do not sell button. Well, I get to be in the meeting when the guys are figuring out how to build the do not sell button, where to put it, like right. how long it's going to take, what the lead time is, what the resource, what the headcount required to roll it out on a you know massive website is, whatever it is. Um, so I think there's a tremendous advantage there if it's just about acquiring knowledge and understanding of how privacy compliance is implemented that is unique to being in house. Yeah. I think that's so dead on. Like, that's so dead on that that 
that really is the differentiator in a lot of ways in the outside counsel that I choose to work with. So it's helpful that, that for instance, Scott was an in-house lawyer because he was in those meetings. He was in other meetings was. like, you know, yeah, like uh, on the other side. However, I, do, I also believe there are outside counsel that have never been inside that still get it and still and still understand right. questions that that need to be asked from a business perspective and to me that's just them working that's just them working to understand it and having you know creating relationships and getting being curious and, and learning about what it truly is like my corporate counsel you know they 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 don't they've never been in a business but they certainly know a lot of the questions to ask when when it comes yeah. to to sort of critical things around a fundraise or critical things around capitalizing the business. These are business questions. They're not necessarily, um, you know, what does Delaware law say about, about this? Um, they, they have to know that too, but um, it's everywhere. And that's good. the foundation though, right? So like you, you expect your outside counsel to know the law, not because they read, you know, like law 360 this morning, which is helpful to see where trends are, but they actually went and read the law. Like they know the law. That would be ideal. Yes. We, yeah, we, well, yeah, we, we joke that sometimes we feel like we're the, we're the folks who actually went and read the statute as opposed to the other law firms, you know, white papers. And it's crazy. It, you know, there's that, a lot of time. Oh, sorry, Scott. I was gonna say because I want to unpack that point you just made because it's important. It's fascinating to me. I use CCP. I used to be the. I used to lead on CCPA for the legal department at Salesforce, yeah. and like, it was fascinating to me to see all the you know client alerts, white papers, you know all that all that law firm collateral um, coming out every time the AG in California said something or did something or whatever. Um, and the diversity of thought that would come out of these like massively different interpretations. I mean, you, everybody hits the general yeah. top points the same. Right. But like just massively different interpretations, sometimes ones that just to your point revealed something to me that was interesting, which is you didn't read the law, I can tell. Like I sometimes would read a client alert. Yeah. Like, you haven't taken the time to read the regulation, the proposed regulatory language or the law or whatever. Um, like, how does an in-houser, like, shuffle through all of that to find some truth? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think you have to have your go-to counsel that where that's able to unpack it for you. And, and this goes back to the hourly rates, though, Pedro, because, you know, that if you've got go-to counsel, that's stuff that is largely being done kind of just as client service, right? You know, it's those phone calls. Hey. I've got this question from operations. We're trying to figure out how to code something. This is how we're reading the statute. Am I reading it right? You know, and, and that's that first 10 minute conversation. Yeah, you, you don't get charged for that. Um, but it can't be that, you know, I'm going to Google it and then and then find some law firm's white paper and say, well, this is what I read. So this is how it works. And I, I still have clients do that. I mean, I have, you know, I have clients who will put up on the screen now that we're in the Zoom world hey, I'm reading this article from the National Law Journal that describes this foreign law. You know, and my response is, well, we probably should go read the law. Good point. But I think it's hard. I, I, I think it's hard to unpack it because there's just a lot of noise. Well, yeah, right? we're, we're in a space where the law is very um, new, right? And hasn't been interpreted so much. So you can get a client alert Pedro, to your point, you can get a client alert from six different law firms that has the same gist, but has a different flavor and a different feel because, and three of those firms could have legitimate different thought processes or interpretations. Right. There are three that might not have read the law so well, but there are, there's an intense amount of variability. So it just goes to that all of the uh, intangible reasons that you select an outside counsel to work with. Um, and, and those are the intangibles that, that matter so much when the chips are down uh, and when you need something. And that actually, leads me, that actually leads me to one of the other things I want to talk about with you, Scott, which is ethics. Um, yeah. As, my, as one, of my, one of my outside counsel, but you also happen to be my friend first. 
um, I, I tend to go to you and you as well, Pedro, for you know the questions that come up outside of the context of work, of the of the actual work, but the actual sort of what should I do ethically in this particular scenario, or what are my obligations to not just to the company or to the, but what are my obligations to myself in terms of he, uh, what do I expect of myself? um as a lawyer and as a business person so where where does that come from for you scott i'm curious you know i am always asking you these things and where do you get that when you need that? yeah well i mean i i get it from conversations with you and and others that i call on um you know i i you know it sounds a little wishy-washy there is this moral compass idea that we all walk around with you know trying to understand what's right and wrong in our own judgment um where that comes from for me i, I really I, I have a hard time i would have a hard time actually explaining that you're, you're getting into like the who's scott lashway thing and boy that gets deep um <laughs> but i you know i i think there listen i i think there is guardrails and what we do, especially your point about this, this area of the law is new, right? And so there are guardrails. There's the third rail, and the third rail is usually easy to identify. Um, you know, one of the things I think we all have a responsibility to, to, to do in our field in particular is understand, you know, do, do I have the ability to figure out the answer to this problem? And do I have the skills? Do I have the experience? Do I have the resources? And this gets to the some of the conversations you and I have had, Andy, where you know sometimes it's it's not always right in front of you. And clients these days demand the answers immediately, right? I'm I'm walking into a meeting. There's going to be an important decision made. I don't have time for you to go do a a memo. I don't want to pay for a memo. And so some of that just comes down to judgment. Um, call you know we we say call balls and strikes and a bunch of other analogies, but you know, for me, I've been practicing about 20 years, and some of that comes from that. Some of that comes from long before I was a lawyer. Is ethics relative? I think it is. I think one of the in, in the question is this relative. Yeah, like does ethics vary by use case scenario and place when we talk about privacy? But we'll keep going. But just interested in your reaction to that question. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so we're talking about privacy. I mean, this is something that I, I usually speak about in private with friends, but we're talking about privacy and the conversation about privacy in the country, in the U.S., is largely about data. There are other fundamental privacy discussions in the country that have been going on for far longer than people have been using the Internet. And... You know, we all studied those cases in law school and they get to very personal things. And it is interesting, you know, I was doing some research this morning for a client call later. And it's, it is interesting, the history of privacy in this country. I mean, there are state constitutions that provide fundamental privacy rights, um, notwithstanding whatever your views are of the U.S. Constitution. And... You know, if you want to get foundational, where does the right to privacy originate in the U.S.? You know, you go back to fundamental rights and freedoms. The Europeans have a strong view on that. The U.S. has a bit of a different view, but some states have very specific constitutional provisions on these on this issue. And I, I think that's a that's a very fascinating discussion, and it's a bit it's a bit of an ethical discussion when looking at someone's privacy rights online. And so yeah, I think you're right, Peter. That's a long way of me saying that right now, I think it is probably relative. Um, I don't know if it should be, but, but, it, but, but the use case and the material that you're claiming um, is private, you know, there are, there, there are differences. There, I think it's also outside of privacy. I can think of one example, Scott, where at a previous, in a previous situation, I went and bent, bent your ear on a topic, right? And I was like, this, it was a business issue. It wasn't a privacy issue. And so it was just saying, this is the business issue. And these are the things that I've done. 
And, you know, your feedback to me was you've, you've done all you can do, you know, at that point, you're, you know, sort of helping me know where yeah. the line to where I like, it's okay to stop. Like, what's your responsibility to stop yelling from the rooftops inside of a business? If you don't agree with something, you don't agree with it. And you say it and you like, you have to put it out there into the world, but like, where does your ethical and, and, and your sort of personal obligation begin and end? So even outside of privacy, just in, in, in general, there are meets and bounds of, of that ethical choice, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I just want to say one thing because I think it's important. I'm like, I'm increasingly curious about and concerned with the dominant notion of privacy and how it is almost an absolutist conversation, meaning like when we're talking about privacy, that's all we're talking about and not doing so in the context of other rights and other issues that may weigh against it or be at tension with it. GDPR and CCPA to me are demonstrations of elitist views on privacy that don't necessarily consider the needs an impact to communities that don't have a voice in the discussion. And some of it is starting to strike me as patriarchal. Uh, like if you're sitting in an Asian country, I can think of two off the top of my head, India and China, just the notion of privacy is different. So the idea that a law like GDPR uh, decide, a regulation like GDPR decides that it's gonna have this like global effect and that's how it was designed just seems like Europe doing European things that they've done for you know, a thousand years. You're not gonna- Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are parts of, I'm not gonna respond to the, to the geopolitical piece, but uh, there are parts of the world that have demonstrated a history to wanna to project its, its beliefs and Europe is certainly one of them, so is the US. Um, as a minority, I this idea though, but but you see where I'm coming well, from, right? Yeah. It is yeah. troubling. It is troubling. It is troubling in a big way, and I think you're definitely right, Pedro. That particularly the, the, the I don't know if it's intended or unintended, but the consequence of some of these provisions and some of the some of the laws are creating disparity and are creating situations in which businesses are making choices, which like will end up promoting disparity without without the ability to really raise that as a as a concern and as a problem like well if i have to if i'm under you know uh, a, a situation where i have to make my platform paid in order to be able to utilize data well what is the impact of that is is very negative on on people and, and disparately impactful and wrong. Um, so, yeah. The, the challenge for me is this. not flexible enough. Yeah, the challenge for me is this, and this has happened before, so this isn't new. The world industrialized 150 years ago and Western countries especially benefited, became incredibly wealthy, powerful nations, created the military industrial complex that to this day is kind of the largest, uh, uh, vessel for power on earth. Um, and now, you know, we say to developing countries, well, now we learned that the environment is impacted and we learned that, you know, mono agriculture is bad and we, whatever. And so you can't do these things now, right? Like now, if you do these things, you don't care about the world, even though we got rich off of doing these very same things. Um, with privacy, I'm starting to see patterns that feel the same. The Western world has benefited greatly from privacy greenfields, right? Like, the company I work for is an example and others, right? Generated tremendous wealth, tremendous social connection, tremendous impact, tremendous uh, like scale of communication and community. And now we're creating all these rules. Well, there are entire continents that are just now adopting social media, that are just now adopting like 3G internet, entire continents, right? Full of hundreds of millions and in some cases, billions of people. I wonder about fairness in the context of imposing these now rigid in some ways, but definitely structured and expensive regulatory regimes on countries who might be developing their own startup ecosystem, their first like 
you know, incubation culture for online companies. Is it fair to say to an African startup in Johannesburg, well, now you have to abide by all of these expensive rules, where if you would have been, you know, in Silicon Valley in 1999, none, none of this mattered. Yeah, man, it's impossible. Yeah, and, but, but one of the, well, the same yeah, groups always I think get one of the things you're all, That's the point, that's the point. But I think you're also getting at a point, Pedro, that we're all paying attention to, which is, you know, I'll see if I can describe it well, but it's, you know, privacy is a bit of a misnomer in how a lot of people use the word. And they're conflating issues. I mean, the easiest example here in the U.S. is every time there's a sizable, you know, data security matter that impacts a large percentage of consumers, or now we've got, you know, supply chain attacks, everybody starts talking about privacy. That's not a privacy issue, first and foremost. It's a security issue. And you know, again, to going back to your um, examples, some of those issues aren't privacy issues. They're the deployment of technology, the availability of technology, the power of technology, um, the um, desire that, you know, individuals and people have to use technology to communicate both within their small communities and then outside to the outside world. And, and some of that's not privacy. Um, and, and we're using privacy in a way to regulate some of that through application of some international or extraterritorial laws, um, rightfully or wrongfully, but it's actually not getting at what some of the core concerns should be. I agree. And you create a high operational cost barrier to entry into markets where scale is where markets where scale happens, like Europe, California. Virginia. I mean, these are highly dense, highly wealthy, highly populated, highly sophisticated infrastructure uh, societies. And so if you're the small startup in India trying to build out scale, and now you have this new, not new, but like this really high cost that just wasn't there when your competition, which are incumbents, were, were scaling. I don't know about fairness there. Right? We don't have any regulatory history. That's the other, that's the other challenge here, right? They can scale and start up what's the regulatory enforcement going to be who knows we don't really well, I, can, I mean think about think about the development of technology in the healthcare space right here even here in the u.s and one could make a good argument that the develop you know the pandemic and the impact that uh, it, that's resulted from the healthcare industry needing to focus the provision of services remotely is probably not such a bad thing for a lot of communities that uh, are not as wealthy, right? That don't have the ability to go to the private doctor every day or, or even to pay for the private doctor. So maybe healthcare is now delivered cheaply, more efficiently at home. But there's also a good argument that the provision and availability of data and the restrictions that some of these laws could apply um, or, or impact that data set is, is impacting the development of technology or could impact the development of technology over the, next, over the coming years. Now, we know there's HIPAA exceptions to some of these, but not all health data is HIPAA data. So, you know, you have those issues right at home here in the US um, with respect to further technology development that you know, should be impacting communities that are not as well off as others. These are hard to question. And then again, that's, that's being done in the privacy. You know, that's being done under this realm of, you know, what's private and what's not private. And it's, it's, it's probably not the right conversation. Yeah, these are, these are interesting, hard questions. I, you know, I, I've never been as philosophical as I am about privacy from a perspective of how it affects other areas of life, to your point, as I have been over the last, like, six, since, since the pandemic, right? Like, um, yeah. And I really do think like us and I'm part of the elite, by the way, like I'm not sitting here acting like I'm I'm one of the privacy Western elites that I'm sure. being critical of, obviously. But some introspection needs to be done about as we promulgate new laws and as we advance and oppose different types of regulations, like considering the effect, not just on marginalized countries, marginalized communities, 
but just the effects on other rights for all of us, how it impacts our lives, how it raises costs, how it raises barriers for people's access and usage of technology for other goods that are maybe aren't as super aligned with privacy. It's just something that I don't hear talked about enough, which is why I talk about it so much on this podcast, because I think it's like super important. I'm glad. I'm glad you're talking about it. I'm glad you're raising it. I'm glad it's on your mind. Um, that makes me yep. that makes me feel good that it's being elevated. It should. Um, it should. I want to go before we before we have to wrap up. I want to ask Scott one more question, if that's okay. I I want you've worked on a lot of data breaches, so cybersecurity, yeah. not necessarily privacy issues. I'm just curious, like, what's the most interesting story that you can tell, or or that you can sort of describe what that's like when you work on one, a, a, an incident like that that's really large or or public or challenging in that way. I mean, th- th- those matters, you know, and I, 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 you know, my, my, if we were continuing to talk about uh, the topic with Pedro, I think there's some overlap here. You know, those matters, I, I think, are benefited by having um, a set of experiences that goes outside of privacy or security. So, you know, some of those security matters are relatively straightforward in the sense of here's what happened and we're going to work through the issue because it's known it's right in front of us where I think those matters become kind of more interesting and more problematic is the ones where you can't figure out what's going on and you know I've got a white collar investigations and litigation background so I come at all of this from a risk perspective and have handled literally hundreds uh, of internal investigations for covering a variety of, of subject matters, including technology and security. And that experience lends itself for me to, you know, try to figure out the puzzle, right? So, you know, something's happening and you can't figure out what's happening. That doesn't mean it just goes away. It means you got to keep grinding at it. And, you know, there are a lot of resources you can can call the table. I mean, I think every day there's a new cyber company that's out there that's going to tell us that their technology is going to solve the problem. But at the end of the day, from my view, it all comes down to human judgment. And so the decision making, like going back to where we started the conversation, you know, the the small decision making in the room when we're trying to operationalize and mitigate legal risk. That is critical so that when the security risk presents itself, you're prepared. In terms of, you know, most of our work in that space is not public, um, which I enjoy. Um, so in terms of telling war stories, I'll, I'll probably steer clear of that for you. But uh, <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've handled matters that, you know, are extremely tricky where, you know, we've had threat actors you know, that we nicknamed by letter from A to M. And, you know, it had all the big ones you read about that had a whole bunch of the criminal organizations. And you think to yourself, how could they all be in this company system at one time, literally operating on the same day? Um, And if you count out letters A through M, that's a lot. So, you know, those are some of the more complicated ones, Um, ones where we have to take a large company and all of its systems down uh, take them offline, scrub everything, you know, in the matter of 12 or 24 hours, and then stand the company back up. Those are those are matters that require a lot of work and a lot of coordination, not just from the team here, but others as well. Um, and there's obviously a lot of privacy issues that intersect with a lot of that work. So sticking with data breach, just a follow up on Andy's question. Are you surprised that I mean, there's been some catastrophic data breaches in the sense of like data loss. Um, and there's like, like uh, you know, lockout attacks and all kinds of things. But are you surprised that no like major Fortune 500 company has just been taken down? I mean, just like operationally inca- incapacitated by a breach. I don't know of an example where that's happened meaningfully, meaning like, like for a prolonged period of time. Um. Am I surprised? No. But is it something we all worry about? Yes. Um, You know, I think there are 
there are there are examples that are public where companies have suffered major attacks and have had pretty significant operational losses. You know, there was, I mean, there was a company that's supporting a lot of the U.S. internet traffic that was taken down a couple of years ago, and no one had ever heard of the company before until they were taken down, and then everyone said, "Oh, wow! I didn't realize that they were operating out of New England. <laughs> they were a focal point of major internet traffic in the U.S." I worked there. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, so, so, so <laughs> this is public, right? But like, couldn't we trace? I don't know if you want to call it like a failure, but like, couldn't we trace the 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 path to to the end of Yahoo that way, in some way? Massive data breach. We've probably already Yahoo was already probably facing like a lot of business challenges when they had that massive data breach. But it must be that that exacerbated the kind of end of Yahoo. You know, I query whether consumers respond to data breaches. And, and I, I, I legitimately mean I query that. I, I, I haven't seen evidence one way or another. I actually haven't seen evidence, and, and someone watching this or listening to it may, may say otherwise, where the market actually responds to data breaches. We see stock prices go down, but they go back up. And you know the idea there is that security risks or privacy risks are embedded in um, the market price. And on the other hand, in private transactions, we see uh, transaction value change. And you know, we've been part of deals where they've changed significantly in a material way because of privacy and security risks. You know, listen. I mean, going back to my comment about how long people have been doing this, I've I've been doing this for about twenty years in privacy and security. And I, you know, people have said, oh, a lot of things have changed. A lot of things haven't changed too. You know, the laws have changed, especially on the privacy side, that's changed pretty significantly. On the security side, you know, people have been stealing things forever, right? Um, and so, you know, the, the vectors have changed, but, uh, you, know, I, you know, I tell a, if I'm in front of a board, you know, I, I make a joke about, you know, you used to need three things to rob a bank. You need a mask, a gun, and a getaway plan. And now you can make yourself a latte and steal millions or more from your couch. And that's all that's changed. I think that's right. And shout out to Yahoo for still sort of being around in a lot of ways. I mean, but just <laughs> different, differently than we expected, I think, back in the 90s. But Yahoo's still kicking. We'll, we'll end we'll end with a shout out to Yahoo. That's shout that's, out to Yahoo, man. That's as good enough as any end. Scott, thanks for for dialing <laughs> in. Thanks for talking with us and uh, the wide ranging conversation. So really fun to chat with you today. And back to the grind. Let's go do it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, I'm going to bill you all point eight for this, just so you know. <laughs> point eight. All right, so coming your way. Don't hesitate. Yeah. All right. Bill Andy. Nice right, <laughs> seeing you guys. Thanks. Later. <laughs> that was funny man. that was good all right we're good scott you can drop off thanks scott okay thanks guys i appreciate the chance it was fun to talk to you both thanks, awesome man. Talk to you later. Hey, hey andy i see that we're still recording um maybe you guys are going to keep doing this but do you want me to reach out to that person for the 18th that you talked about for the what reach out to him for the 18th i didn't reach out to cam do you want me to reach out to him yeah will you yeah, I will. And see if you can do the 9.30 slot. Yeah, that'd be, good. That'd be awesome. Okay. I'll see if he's free to join. Okay. Thanks. All right. All right. See you guys. See you, Pedro.